policy that will benefit black people will benefit all of society. Let's be clear about that. Let's really be clear about that. So I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No, because whatever benefits that black family will benefit that community and society as a whole in the country. Right? I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, el podcast que celebra la música clásica, la confesión y esta semana, el Cinco de Mayo. Verdad. It's verdad. Verdad? Verdad. That's right. That's right. Shout out to everybody. This is coming out on Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just go ahead and say that right out the gate? <laughs> Cinco de Mayo is a, uh, a great opportunity to shine a light, on, and I'll, we'll get into this uh, in this opus, but shine a light on what I affirm through the lens of blackness, through a different lens, to talk about and challenge that phrase classical and the aesthetics that we attach to that phrase classical music, but just from um, the perspective of a culture that we don't belong to, but we have the opportunity to highlight mm-hmm. on a day like Cinco de Mayo. So we'll get into that. Hello, everyone, and thank you for attending, listening to Opus 99 of the Triloquy Podcast. Dun, dun, dun. 99. Wow. We really appreciate all of your support and all of your uh, continued, continued, continued notes and thoughts and um, donations, all of that. Thank you so much. We're at the intersection of a lot uh, right now, uh, Scott. We have uh, Cinco de Mayo, the day this drops, but um, this is the first opus of May where we have Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, so mm-hmm. we're going to get mm-hmm. into a little bit of that uh, this week. We also There's also, uh, between now and when we drop this, May the 4th, I don't guess we're going to have any Star Wars music this opus, but shout out to John Williams and all of that incredible music. March of the Ewoks, that's, that's my, that's a vibe. That's a vibe. I love it. Um, let me see. Oh, what I, I wrote down a, a quick word here. Did you want to, Scott, uh, send a shout out to the homeowners or to the aspiring homeowners? Because you've been up to some projects yeah. for the past little while. <laughs> uh, all I have to say is good luck to you because uh, a guy that lives catty corner from me put his house up on the market. And all day yesterday, Sunday, it was just a revolving door of people going in and out looking at it. Mm-hmm. He said that he had four offers. All of them were about $30,000 over the asking price, which is great. But now he's with everybody else trying to jockey for the new house. But so, you're not selling your home. You're no, just no. doing... What, what, are, what are you up to over there? I uh, put a new floor on the porch. Mm-hmm. And also the retaining wall's getting done. So about 120 feet of block being put in. Not by me. Not by me. <laughs> well... Hmm. With all that hard work you're uh, you're putting in managing over there, glad to definitely glad to a supervisory definitely a supervisory <laughs> role. I'll be standing up on the porch with a with coffee or beer, supervising. <laughs> I was gonna say lemonade or something. <laughs> uh, support for this opus of Triloquy comes from Ryan Romain over at Shenandoah University, where all of his students are learning the bassoon arrangement of William Grant Still's three songs. One of those movements came up in a master class that I taught over this past week at Shenandoah University. Uh, So I'm going to actually talk a little bit about that in the second movement today. Really important piece of music that I also want to highlight today. If you want to learn more about what Ryan is up to, I'll have a link 
um, in the description of this opus. I want to uh, point your attention to a live stream event that's coming up. I wish that uh, I would have uh, gotten this email a little bit sooner, but I'm coming back in from vacation. But um, shout out to New York Orchestra of St. Luke's. They have a live stream coming up. It's music and spoken word about cultural whitewashing with Pulitzer Prize winner Rita Dove. It's called Sounds and Stories, Rita Dove. Uh, she's the first black U.S. poet laureate. They're doing music by Haydn, Beethoven, and Bridge Tower. It is today, as you're hearing this, Wednesday the 5th, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Just go to oslmusic.org, and we'll also post the full length in the description here. starts at 6.30 Eastern time. The guest for this opus is Mr. Quentin Morris from our friends over at King FM, hey, they have Quentin. a nice conversation about programming and about his new program, Unmute the Voices, which I'm excited for everyone to uh, get a little bit of information on. The downbeat for this opus came from Vice President Kamala Harris. We'll be speaking uh, to, you know, some of her opinions in the fourth movement mm. uh, today. As I mentioned earlier, we got some Mexican music coming up, a little bit of uh, music uh, inspired by Asian culture and all sorts of other stuff. So let's go ahead and jump into movement one. Scott, July 1st, New York is bike. New York is back. <laughs> We've been talking about uh, Streets is Done up there. Well, New York is back on July 1st. If you want that New York experience, you know, go walking down the street after getting uh, drunk at the club to get your slice of pizza, to stumble on the train. If you want to do all of that, July 1st. Have you ever, do you have your New York stories? Your Never been. You've never been in New York City? Not one time. Oh, well, we'll have to, we'll have to change that this year. Oh, shit. Because New York is bike. Oh, except for the Met. Oh, hey, okay. Except for the Met. So, um, accidental number one. Accidental number one. I'm putting a flat next to this. This article is coming from operawire.com. It says IATSE, that's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Local One, their union, says Metropolitan Opera will not open. In 2021, I'll read a little bit here. The AITSC Local 1 uh, has stated that the Metropolitan Opera is unlikely to reopen in 2021. The union, which represents the stagehands, technicians, and skilled craftspeople, noted that the current lockout of its workers is likely to continue for the next month. So let me go down a little bit here uh, just to give a little bit more context. Um, the union has claimed... Uh, Peter Gelb is sitting out the pandemic in a luxury midtown apartment provided by the opera company. While he claims not to be taking compensation currently, his pay will likely be made up later through deferred compensation or bonuses. So we have a lot going on yeah. here, Scott. We have an executive director who isn't um, so, uh, how can I say, impacted by what's been going on for the past 13, 14 months. Huh. We have a lockout of stagehands and all these other uh, non-musicians employed by the Met. And it, it looks like, you know, the leader, the so-called leader in the industry is not going to be at this grand, uh, this season of grand reopening that I bet we're going to see come September, October mm -hmm. with all of these arts mm -hmm. institutions. Any any thoughts? What do you, what do you think about this? Uh, there's so many moving parts on this. Um uh, should I say I'm not surprised? Sure. <laughs> okay. So I'm not surprised on that score. Yeah. I, maybe I shouldn't laugh because I think about all of those missed wages. And again, 
the big events of just New York coming back uh -huh. and one of New York's biggest arts institutions, Western arts institutions, not being able to be a part of that because of the politics of this sort of workspace. One of the things that I wanted to pull from this, something that I thought was really interesting to think about, was that in art spaces, we love to make things apolitical, maybe even using some art spaces as an escape from certain political or, or, or social or to try to do that. Right. Yep. But as we can see here, politics is fully infused into this institution. And it's not only impacting all of uh, its employees, it's impacting the patrons, which, you know, many of them are rich. We can talk about that. But also um, what's supposed to be coming down the line. My One of my first thoughts was that we aren't going to get to see this Terrence Blanchard uh, fire shut That's up right. in my bones opera. You know, the first, they have never done a black opera ever. Mm. So we're supposed to be having it this fall, but because of inner politics, um, we can't we, we can't see that. Mm. My question is, how long is it going to take for folks to realize that the administration and the leadership team can't step on stage and start playing an instrument or singing right. a role right. or whatever? So when are we going to start losing management in favor of musicians and stagehands? Mm -hmm. I think um, when we talk about the structure of these arts institutions, this is a great example for me, uh, a case study and why the workers, we like to put the musicians at the center, but again, this issue is with stagehands and, and other mm -hmm. skilled workers. How we have to change the structure to where the workers need to have more say in how things go about the decision making. Right. And it right. can't just be this top, this big, huge top down thing because it doesn't really work. And there's all sorts of conversations about the union and, you know, I mean, I, I don't really have a political opinion so much when it comes to unions because I've never had those types of jobs. I've always been a member of um, AFM, the American Federation of Musicians. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to politically being pro-union or anti-union, I've never really been involved or engaged in that. Do you think there is any part of this issue that sort of speaks to that dynamic, how you know union membership... Um, negotiations, all of those things playing such a big role here when we think of the Met and we think of music. We aren't thinking about that, but as we can see... No, but we certainly are hearing more and more of those stories, like um, groups trying to come together and unionize during the pandemic, mm -hmm. and the owner of the business or the organization shuts everything down, not just the unionization efforts, mm -hmm. the whole business. I'm thinking of Surly Brewing. Okay. You know, so and Spy House Coffee, you know, these are some local businesses that when the employees tried to come together, the management just went, okay, well then we'll just shut everything down. Then. Right. So I don't, I don't know. When you're, you, when you were, as you were talking, I, I guess I remember it. I guess you're now a member of a union, right? That's still being negotiated. That's still yep. being negotiated. Yep. I don't. It's a really long process. I had no idea it would be so long. I don't think that. Um, American public media where you work would shut everything down, like would stop the presses, you know, as the Met is doing. No, that's not possible. Um, but there are, and I shouldn't say but and, there are a lot of people who I'm sure would never have imagined the Met being dark for this sort of oh, issue no. at the same no, time. No, no, so, no, of course not. You know, it's it's a different issue and never say never and... I don't know. It's we're 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 really seeing a different sort of a shade of the arts, aren't we? That's true. There is some uh, some good 
opera news I wanted to um, bring up before we left this accidental. I have another uh, article I want to uh, quickly um, introduce here. I'm reading from broadwayworld.com. Black Opera Alliance and TRG Arts released first insight report. I'm going to read a little bit of this. Social justice advocacy group Black Opera Alliance and international arts management consultants TRG Arts have released the first insight report tracking progress U.S. opera companies are making toward the eight areas of needed transfer Transformation defined in the Black Opera Alliance's pledge for racial equity and systemic change in opera. I'll post this article um, in the description. I wanted to bring this up because as we have all of the issues at the Met, one of the things that I think the Black Opera Alliance has paid attention to in its work are the intricacies of a of of the uh, of looking at an opera house. In its entirety. So we're not just talking about the Black Opera Alliance. We're not just talking about the musicians and the singers. We're talking about the makeup artists and the wig artists and the lighting crew and all of these people who play yeah. a role yeah. in these productions. The, the Met is a signatory to this pledge. The Met is also dark. So mm. <laughs> there are a lot of opera companies. I think, uh, as you can read, I'll, again, I'll post the article, but as you can read, most, something like 54% of United States opera companies have signed on to this pledge. I'm quoted in this article um, by just affirming that the benefit of looking at this shows the challenges unemotionally, maybe even unpolitically. We're just looking at the numbers of the diversity um, in all of of your field. So um, as we continue to move forward, as we hope that everyone who's working up there for the Met um, gets their check, I also wanted to announce that there is some positive movement in other opera companies that are not the Met. I think, you know, one other thing before we leave this, we're saying that the big box, the big, huge ships of organizations, if they are just sort of stuck in some proverbial canal, I guess we had that in real life about a month ago, but yep. if they're stuck in some proverbial canal, it's going to be so much harder for them to get themselves out of that mess mm -hmm. as opposed to the smaller, more agile, flexible institutions. And we're seeing this right now with the Met. The Met is stuck in one of these canals. First, it was COVID that shut them down. Now we're talking about this sort of political um, lockout situation and Peter Gelb just sitting up in his castle and not doing much it's when streets is bike for new york city when the met gets to come back goodness gracious things have to have changed structurally for for everything to finally be working again so mm. well as a sort of musical transition here um we're going to talk about cinco de mayo later and um the involvement in uh, uh of that france had in that bit of history you know, okay as we talk about so um just maybe as a preview last night you know on the old record player just going through the stacks i pulled out carmen this french piece of music and of course it's full of this spanish sort of aesthetic and you know flavor but it's fully french and then it got me thinking about other composers who do that did that we can talk about ravel and the the mm -hmm. spanish influence mm -hmm. and and all these other people the french really were good at a uh, borrowing manuel de Faya as well yeah <laughs>
Uh, Manuel de Falla, yeah. Well, he studied in France. Oh, he, uh, but he was Spanish, wasn't he? That's right. I'm saying it's just like a cross, there's like a cross-pollinization. Oh, so, oh you, you see it as a uh, a, a relationship a, that a, is trading. A composer like trade. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we spent a lot of time on this podcast going into the deep cuts and, you know, um, really stretching that definition of classical music. I also like affirming some of the classics. So and thinking about opera and, you know, France as, as it relates to Mexico and all that stuff coming together, I thought I would share a little bit of this uh, French Spain-inspired composition by Bizet. This is the Dance Poème from uh, the Carmen Suite. So let's take a little listen to that. We talk about expanding the repertoire. There are certain pieces of music, maybe even certain composers, that I think should stay. I don't think we talk enough about what needs to go away, what needs to be pushed to the side. I think that um, Bizet's Carmen, at least the orchestral suites, is one of those things that just needs to stick around. Maybe that's just a personal affinity. I think that is phenomenal enough. You know, it's unmediocre enough to get to stay. What do you think about, you know, the Carmen Suites? As we talk about expanding things and leaving certain things to b- behind, uh, are, are you good with Carmen staying? Absolutely. I think that's, that's foundational. That's like uh, classical 101. You know, very early on, I remember hearing just instrumental versions of all, you know, the suites, of course. Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, the vocal stuff came later. But yeah, I think that Carmen would be foundational. That would be uh, first year in classical appreciation. I get specific about the orchestral suites because I know the character of Carmen uh-huh. in the context of the opera right, right. speaks to some old stereotypes and things that are sort of, I shouldn't say sort of, very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe if someone tells me I need to cancel the orchestral suites, send me an email. I'll think about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I will consider it. Okay. For right now, I, I'm going to say let's keep the the Carmen Suites. Agreed. That's me standing for Bizet. I did it. One of the European composers got my stamp of approval. Oh, look at you now. <laughs> all right. What, what you got for an accidental? Well, the racial reckoning, all you folks over there in the UK, it's coming for you. <laughs> did, you see, <laughs> did you see that critical race theory is being attacked as a concept? I saw that on my timeline today. Um, and I think uh, educational institutions in Idaho have canceled all like of just, that. Just none of that, Yeah, period. you're not going to be studying that in Idaho. All these racist potatoes coming into the grocery store. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy my mashed potatoes now. <laughs> so you say, anyway, everything, everything that, there's, that some of the people are scared of here in the United States is about to go over across the water, or it's going over there. Uh, it is going on over there. Musician Roger Wilson is campaigning on behalf of organization Black Lives in Music to highlight and improve upon the, quote, paucity of real diverse representation in classical music. Um, also, you know another name in this article, Chichi Nuanko. Yeah, Nuanoku. Uh, Nuanoku, I'm sorry. Thank you for that. Um, back in 2019, in this article, she's quoted as saying, the proms run for eight weeks, two or three concerts a day, but you'll have to listen carefully for music composed by anyone other than a white male. In total, there will be less than four hours of it and less than 20 minutes from black and minority ethnic composers throughout the whole season. 
So now, evidently, the 2021 season, because they're going to be back, mm-hmm. their bike. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so evidently, the program offerings have improved. But now um, Mr. Roger Wilson is saying, now look at everybody up here playing. Because if a black musician here in the in England were to come to this concert and watch this, he would not think that there's an opportunity for him or her in that organization. It's enough. Unless that, Sheku happened to be there. Well, and you know, <laughs> a, a couple of weeks ago, an article with Sheku came out where he said that he didn't see many black people when he mm-hmm. was studying classical music. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, he calls it the snow white appearance. That's what got the, me. The BBC when, when Roger Wilson, you know, yeah, the, the title BBC must improve diversity of near snow white proms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My, my, this is my challenge, Scott, when it comes to American institutions playing American classical music, race is going to be a part of that. And race can be used to affirm the foundational nature of what is American classical music. Mm-hmm. When I think about the foundational music of England, I am not studied enough on European history to make that sort of case for diversity in the concert hall. Yeah, I don't think I am either, but we do know that uh, black people are there. Of and course. have been there for uh, centuries. Yeah, go back to Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and I'm right. sure even the first um, black person to vote in, um, in England was a black composer, Ignatius Sancho, born mm, on a mm. slave ship. From from Africa to England, became the first um, black person to vote and, and also a, a composer of music. You brought up a really good point when we were talking about this article earlier. Uh, is England going to have its reckoning done with before America? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? I think sometimes we think of, I, anyway, I'll speak for myself, think of certain parts of Europe as more progressive and more forward-thinking. I promise, if, the, if they can get the proms black before... You know, the Met can get its act together. What, what, what are we supposed to do? I, I don't mean, know. What, what, what I, is to be said? I have, yet, I have yet to see a response from anybody at the BBC proms. I, right. don't, I don't know what their thoughts on this are. But really, it's too late for this year. I mean, everything's already lined up, right? How long do you think it takes to put together an eight-week festival like the BBC proms? Ooh, I mean, with all of the planning, and then you, we talk about the media, the recordings that y'all use at you know your job and yeah. all sorts of radio stations so i think there's a lot that goes into that and and i don't know god bless him. <laughs> i'm glad it's not my problem and shout out to roger wilson again i think that is such a lofty uh mountain to climb again making a case for uh black music diverse music over there where colonization was invented Right. Over where all of this started, right? So that is that is a I I, I take my hat off to to Roger Wilson for for taking this on. Well, the article showed up in Irishmirror.ie, so I mean, this is not a small outlet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, his words definitely were heard by the people over the BBC. I'm sure. Um, we I talk about um, Clubhouse a little bit on uh, on here sometimes, and something that I heard on Clubhouse that I'll never forget is this young woman was talking about how. Um, names like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are now global, 
we will never know their George Floyds and their Breonna Taylors, that sort of stuff that happens to the black folks over there every day that doesn't get all of the acclaim. Um, to draw a connection there, yes, we know the names Samuel Coleridge Taylor. We featured um, Erilyn Wallen, for example, right. here on Triloquy. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Ignatius Sancho, all of these other um, black composers and creators of music. I'm sure there are all sorts of composers over there that are just trying to get some ensemble to play their music, much less the proms. Without and question. they likely have a harder time. Without question. And uh, up until a few years ago, one of, my, one of the things on my to-do list was cataloging all of these different performances that were coming in from the European Broadcasting Union. Yeah. And um, it, it's all the usual suspects. There were, there, were, there were no composers of color that we aired that I remember. Yeah. Well, if this conversation can happen in an active way, as I said before, if this conversation can happen in an active way over there, that means we really don't have an excuse. <laughs> Triloquy number three. We, we just don't have an excuse. We're not even in the fourth movement yet. I know. They, they just, That's what I'm they saying. Just, <laughs> they don't have an excuse. <laughs> um, so anyway, in, moral, moral to the story, wrap up to this, just thoughts and prayers to Roger Wilson, because again, <laughs> he, he a good one. Right, but like like I said, this the the way that his story's getting published, his words are being heard in yep. the upper offices of the BBC. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as always, shout out to uh, Chi Chi Nwanoku because everything that she has gone through over there personally, you know, just as a bass player, as a black bass player. So sometimes, uh, if you hear Chi Chi tell the story of her name even, why she has that African name. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's just the, the importance of preserving culture. And like I said, I don't have the, uh, I'm not learned enough about European history to speak to the foundational nature of people of color, um, to the culture of music over there in England. But I know there there has to be something there because she we does, know that at yeah. this point that blackness is global. And She know. does elaborate on that in the piece, basically saying, you know, not only is, you know, this whole genre this whole industry that's been created around this music is elitist and is racist yeah, she yeah. uses those words it's there in the article is, is not afraid to call online. something racist something else we'll get name into it. in the fourth movement naming it when i was in england last i this i think this was 2013 something that i realized that i had never thought about before going over there was how um ingrained Indian food and other Indian cultures is to mm -hmm. England. I even think their national dish is tikka masala or something. <laughs> I mean, did did you have you experienced much Indian culture in England when you last time you were there? Did you uh did you see or feel or taste any of that? That's where we would go when we wanted some flavor in the food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. So my last our, our last night there, the whole group of us went to an Indian restaurant. And uh, somebody ordered vindaloo, the hottest dish that they had. And we made a game of how long you could hold a pepper in your mouth and <laughs> took pictures of people making the different faces. Well, again, I'm sure that was a, a welcome uh, reprise from the boiled meats or whatever. You know. Hey, do not do not disrespect those sausage rolls. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, now, English breakfast hits. Yes, it does. With the beans and yes, all that. Yes, it does. Anyway, I'm bringing up <laughs> Indian culture in England. Um as a way of musically getting us to the the final accidental, but also affirming um, Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander Heritage Month. When we think about Asian heritage and celebration of Asian cultures, I think we tend to uh, center 
um, the aesthetics of China, Japan, Japan maybe sure. even sometimes Korea when it comes to pop music and that sort of thing. Um, we often forget about Asian people of darker hues, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there is some colorism to that. We won't have that conversation here, but um, I just would like to encourage everyone to remember that the continent of India, when we talk about classical music, this is one of our examples, age-old centuries, eons-old traditions that are as classical as this stuff that is, oh, I don't know, two, three hundred years old, you know, the, the new kids on the block. So I think it's always important to, to get to that. We're going to have some South Indian music coming up a little later uh, this month as we reprise a conversation uh, that we had with Nirmala. But for today, I wanted to give a shout out to Ravi Shankar and uh, his performance with the London Symphony Orchestra, a sitar concerto that uh, I suppose he wrote and performed and recorded. And uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of that here to get us to the final accidental. Think of the sitar. You can you can play the guitar. Mm-hmm. Playing a sitar must be somewhere close to what you could do, right? Uh, no. <laughs> and plus, the sound of it is so. No. <laughs> no, I've I've always admired that sound uh, all the way going back to hearing it for the or, or the essence of that sound in a Steely Dan track called "Do It Again." The guitar solo has that, and that sort of ignited the interest that when I actually did hear the sitar, a real proper sitar player. It seemed familiar, almost like, hey, this was cool in a different genre, so maybe it's cool here too. So yeah, that's how I was introduced to it. Yeah, we get introduced to a lot of um, Asian stories and aesthetics through pop culture, music, and of course, also video games. I wanted to leave a little room in this first movement this week to acknowledge Mortal Kombat 2021. Of course. Why? <laughs> not because this, I, I know it seems cheap, not because this is um, Asian American Heritage Month, nothing like that. This doesn't have anything to do with that as much as I just wanted to affirm it because I saw so much hate mm-hmm. on my timeline. And as someone of the generation who played the Sega game, uh-huh. you know, I was there pressing ABACABB. For blood mode. Oh, you dude, know, <laughs> I had the original on the Sega Genesis. Yeah, yeah. So you really had to, you know, you had to have all the buttons on the controller that you do now. So I watched it and I thought it was dope. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the unvillainization of Scorpion. I'm, you know, he was always my character alert, in the game. Was he? Yep. I was. Get I was, over here. I was always a Jax. And then in the later iterations, I would like to play as uh, Motaro, who was actually oh, in the movie. Yeah, so and I also have to say, I saw people dissing on Kung Lao online. Do not diss Kung Lao, <laughs> played by Max Wong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, he was when when he when that player came onto the game. I was throwing that hat. I was ready for them to fight at the dinner table when <laughs> Kano was talking shit. Yeah. I was ready. Yeah. I was ready. Anyway. He was um, just the right amount of jerk, too, mm-hmm. I think, Kano. But that character was supposed and has always been in the you, right. Do you remember the the first one, the first movie Saw it in that the theater. came out? Yeah, same. 
they that so that very stare that that techno ish clubhouse music. You bet. That did they didn't even put that in the new one, and no. I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah. I've been thinking about this, and I think uh, it's it's a it's a, a good connection to make. So the guy who plays Scorpion in this movie, his name is Hiroyuki Sanada. This he's he's an actor who has been in all sorts of stuff. We have the um, IMDb pulled up here. He's been oh that's the Rotten Tomatoes. Here we go. He has been in um, Westworld, um, uh, Avengers: Endgame, Minions. I remember him from Lost. That's that's the first time I can think of it. It says Rush Hour Three here. All sorts of stuff. And one of the through lines you can see, Scott, as you see all of these roles, is that these are Japanese or Japanese inspired characters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So often, I almost hesitate, but I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go here anyway. So often, there are black artists, black musicians who don't want to be known as the black composer, the black bassoonist. That you know, in, in that way. When I look at the work of Hiroyuki Sanada, as I was watching him perform in Mortal Kombat, I just couldn't stop thinking about how unashamed he is to affirm. Japanese culture, the the culture you know that he comes from mm-hmm. through his art. We see the martial art. We get the aesthetics of feudal era Japan. We get to hear the language. And Lost, he doesn't even speak English. Everyone, excuse me, everyone else um, translates for him, and he says something like, "I just don't like the taste of English in my mouth," or, right, or something like that. Burn. I I want to see more of that, and maybe that's problematic, or maybe a little spicy to say. I personally don't mind being the black podcaster, the black bassoonist, the black whatever, because being black for me is is being beautiful. There's there's nothing wrong in in really living in that juice for me. Mm-hmm. Just as as I can see, as far as I can assume, based on all of these receipts of this long and successful career that Hiroyuki Sonata has had. He seems also very proud to affirm his heritage through his art. It's not music, it's acting, mm-hmm. but still mm-hmm. it's an affirmation of that. I ask you this, I don't know, every every other week, every three weeks, am I stretching? Am I making any sense? Do you, do no, you I, see the point I'm making? I do. I, I follow what you're saying. And, and also I think it speaks to uh, his skill as an actor that whenever somebody needs that role, that he will bring authenticity to it. Right. And, and I think that's the draw is when it's authentic. Right, right. And then I think um, his work that highlights Japanese culture in this uh, in, in very authentic ways often, I think, affirms some of the other things that we may pick up through video games or, you know, everyone, a lot of people love anime, you know. Sure. I, I happen to um, study Japanese for, for many years. And, you know, there's some, there, there are a lot of overlaps there. So I wanted to affirm the Mortal Kombat 2021. I Stop shitting on that movie because it was good to me anyway. You know, not too heavy. And what were you? What were they expecting? An Oscar winning? I don't, I don't per- know. I mean, it's a movie after a and video game. And that's what we're talking about because we don't watch the Oscar winning movies anyway. No. We, we never know any of the movies nominated <laughs> for an Oscar. No. So here, you know, here we are. Um, so yeah, shout out, shout out to uh, everyone over there. I for, I don't know the the company who made Mortal Kombat. Well, Neither first, do I. well, shout out to putting it on HBO Max because it was theaters and HBO Max. It looks like that's going to be the thing moving forward. I like watching a new movie and not paying sixty seventy dollars. 
Get up that. by the time you buy tickets, get a couple of popcorn, get a soda. Don't get a large. No. Because <laughs> that's $20. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, Hiroyuki Sonata really being the example, I think, of not being afraid to always take the opportunity to affirm culture. As we transition into the second movement, I also wanted to um, give a shout out, give a little room to the Suzuki method as we affirm the way Asian culture cultures and Asian ideas have impacted America. I think the Suzuki method is probably one of the biggest mm-hmm. when it comes to For music. Sure. I was not a Suzuki student. I, I sort of come from the Orff Schulwerk school, you know, as codified by Carl Orff. Mm-hmm. But basically the um, Suzuki method is a method that tries to teach um, playing an instrument in the same way that a child learns to speak a language, you know, just really meeting them where they where they are. I think the first thing in the Suzuki method is twinkle, twinkle, little star. And then it goes all the way through a couple of uh, Mozart concertos or whatever, you know, just over the course of it. The first um, person to graduate to go through all of the Suzuki method is a violinist, a Japanese violinist named Ta- Takako Nishizaki. I think she lives in Hong Kong now, actually, and teaches mm-hmm. um, violin. But um, in addition to really affirming Suzuki method and being a part of this global wave that has impacted American uh, schools of music, you know, learning music in the United States in a big way. She has this beautiful recording of the Butterfly Lovers Concerto, is. which is um, really integral uh, to, to Chinese culture in many ways. The first time I ever heard of this piece, Scott, was uh, when I was performing it. I think I was a junior or first-year senior in undergrad, and the orchestra performed it in a um, in a concert, in a presentation in conjunction with um, one of the Asian Heritage Societies in Memphis. I'm sorry that I'm not um, uh, remembering them right now. That's but, okay. But, you know, just fusing those ideas together and, you know, giving me this great piece of music. And then, of course, years later, um, I finally get into radio and rediscover this piece of music through through the recording made by Takako Nishizaki. So I thought I would share a little bit of that here as we got into our second movement. Before we get too far away from that composition by composers He Zhanghao and Cheng Gang, um, a lot you'll see a lot of people frame this the story of the Butterfly Lovers as the Chinese Romeo and Juliet. Now, what's mm-hmm. the problem? What's the, let's just stop right there. What's the problem? We should not be comparing <laughs> one piece of art through. Uh, by identifying it from something in the canon, right? So, so or, or or something that yeah, right, centers Western culture in any way, right? So, especially considering that the the ancient tale of the butterfly lovers is Precedes. much older than Shakespeare. Okay, <laughs> uh huh. So, just want, it's important to name these things. Maybe that's where old Bill got this. Maybe that's where Uncle Bill got it from. Uncle Bill. William Shakespeare. Oh, <laughs> I never heard that. Uncle Bill. Never mind. It's all right. There was, I worked in a bar one time where there was a person uh, who everyone just called Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill could drink some PBR. Could he? About seven or eight of the tall boys in oh a my. sitting, but always tipped beautifully. Shout, uh, out to, shout out to Uncle Bill down in Knoxville. I'm going to name my next heartburn after him. <laughs> seven tall boys? Seven. Seven or eight. Because they're only $2 down south, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so 
we clear we know why we don't say Chinese Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Yes. We also need to recover why um, Cinco de Mayo is not well. Not why it's not Mexican Independence Day, but that it's just not. I'm reading here <laughs> from National Today. Now, see, this article even starts interesting. It says, everyone knows what May 5th or Cinco de Mayo Mayo means. Tacos, margaritas, fun, and fiesta. I don't like the way this starts. She's she's got all four of them. I'm not going to, I'm not affirming that. I'm affirming that this article goes into the history of Cinco de Mayo. Let me, <laughs> let me read a little bit about this. It says, An economically struggling Mexico was intervened by the French for the second time who had the hopes to gain control of the Latin American country under the rule of Napoleon III. The French general Charles de Lorences, I think that uh, is pronounced, directed his army toward the capital of Mexico City with the intent to overthrow the president of Mexico, Benito Juarez. But things didn't go as planned as they encountered encountered heavy resistance culminating at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862, a battle that they won and mm-hmm. and uh, the rest is history. So I know that there has been a lot of trivializing of Cinco de Mayo, you know, just thinking of it as this holiday where you go take tequila shots and, and get drunk and, yep. and do all that. I have always seen Cinco de Mayo as an opportunity to highlight Mexican culture in a way that we don't always. As classical music, so-called classical music professionals, I think Cinco de Mayo is a perfect time to talk about composers who we don't always name. Composers like uh, Chavez, you know, mm-hmm. well, one of the one of the big ones down there. Um, you're going to talk about uh, Revueltas here in a second. A composer that I always love uh, to highlight in my programming days for Cinco de Mayo is Augustine Lara. Now, mm, this mm-hmm. composer was one who wasn't exclusive to orchestral music or, or Western classical music, wrote all sorts of songs and, and, and other things. And one of them um, was called Granada. This is a song that comes from uh, the 1930s, and it's been covered and rearranged in um, so many different versions. The recording that I always go to features the Boston Pops Orchestra. It's this album called the Latin Album, and it goes through all sorts of composers and big hits by um, from, from all over Latin America. Um, Agustin Lara, you know, one of the composers that highlights Mexico um, uh, from that album, you know, the, the arrangement starts with these trumpets that immediately, you know, speak to that tradition of mariachi and, and Mexican instrumental music. And then as you just get into the singing, it's just so beautifully genuine and beautifully Mexican. It's music that, of course, we should be celebrating year-round, mm-hmm. but it's extra special, I think, to highlight on a holiday like Cinco de Mayo, one we don't always think of as an opportunity to learn culture, mm-hmm. but one that I think is, um, is great to use for that. Keith Lockhart and the Boston Pops there with the ensemble Mariachi Cobre. 
You play guitar. Have you ever tried a, a mariachi style anything? No, I haven't. I haven't. I have enough trouble with the with the basic with classical good old te- American. Yeah, with the basic <laughs> classical technique, and you know, uh, yeah, I'm, music doesn't come naturally to me. I I really do have to work at it. But um, Leo Brower was uh, a composer that I learned quite a bit of. He's uh, Cuban, but. Um, So that's about as close as I can get. But I wanted to talk about uh, Sylvester Revueltas, which is a composer that not a lot of people know that much about. And there's two pieces that I wanted to highlight, mainly because one of them is that sort of sound that you go, oh, that's a Mexican piece of music. You know, it, it conjures the images of a Cinco de Mayo, I think. It's a, it's a festival. You can see the uh, the ladies in their in their dresses, you know, with the with the with all the dramatic movements that they make and and the dance steps that the 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 men have, the you know, the sort of the hat dance or a pole dance sort yeah. of a feel. And you can obviously smell the food in the air and hear the cheers. The the piece of music that does that for me by Revueltas is La Noche de los Mayas number 2. Dos. You listen to that and you feel like you're there in the street, you know, maybe watching the parade go by or something like that. Yeah. But keep in mind that Revueltas died in 1940. Yeah. And so he was doing a lot of some of the same experimentation in neoclassical that uh, a lot of American and European composers were doing. Right. So if you listen to this next piece called Sense Maya, I would not have identified this as a... Mexican piece. It sounded mm-hmm. very much like what other composers of the time were doing in that neoclassical vein. And uh, this is uh, Alondra de la Parra conducting the Philharmonic Orchestra of the Americas. Uh, it's from an, uh, an album called My Mexican Soul. And she says that her whole uh, goal with doing that album was getting you past that first paragraph right. that you read about Cinco de Mayo. She says, yes, Mexico is beaches and tacos and margaritas and we love all those things but you have to know that there's more down here and she set out as a mission to try to um, bring some of those lesser known composers to the fore Or last during uh, when we were talking about 420 and Jamaica and Jamaican music, yes, that is a part of it, and yes, there's and. so much more. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, Juan Pablo Contreras, the uh, Opus 59 guest. He was speaking to the same things. Many of his compositions are in a style that 
you know, you wouldn't necessarily hear Mexico in it. I think we can say the same thing about, we were in England earlier, right? I think we can say the same thing about Samuel Coleridge Taylor. We can say, you know, um, David Baker's music is coming up a little uh, later uh, in this opus. We can can speak to, you know, all of these people who come from these very diverse cultural backgrounds also writing music that, you know, speaks to the more uh, formalist, I'll say, side of things, just the writing in a specific style. So it's, it's very important to acknowledge both. I like to highlight the Mexican sounding things because I feel like what many people would um, consider mariachi or banda or those sorts of things, they wouldn't necessarily call it classical or put it in the classical box. I think it belongs there. So that's why I like to draw that comparison, just to affirm this classical music that you know as fill in the blank, which it is that, which is a classical tradition of uh, Mexico. So happy uh, Cinco de Mayo, everyone. If you're uh, vaccinated, I guess have a good time. (laughs) If you're not... There are margaritas at home. Yes, there be, are. Are you? Do, do you have a Cinco de Mayo plans? I know you don't have to go to work in the evening. I, I'm I'm sorry, maybe, I don't. May, may, maybe you can come over and drink some tequila. I'll, I'll buy some. Oh, because limes. that's what I need, <laughs> right? So I might as well just curl up on your floor mat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today, <laughs> as I prepare for that, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm, all I'm saying is tequila is my kryptonite, man. A couple shots of that, and I'm anybody's. Today's guest is Quentin Morris from King FM. We were talking about King FM a few weeks ago. So now, and this has, you know, I'm sure been in the works for weeks now. They have a show coming up called Unmute the Voices, hosted by Quentin Morris, that's just going to highlight blackness. It's going to highlight black composers, black performances, black performers. This time where we get to celebrate that and that alone each and every week. I think that's a really great step for um, any institution to make, certainly a radio station, to dedicate time, not, you know, for this one go, not, you know, for this series, but here and on out. And uh, and elsewhere, yes. We have this. So uh, Quentin and I um, speak to um, what he plans to do there, definitions of classical music, the importance of um, a classical radio as a player in DEI, something we talk about all the time. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's uh, really, uh, really cool. To transition us into our conversation, I wanted to go to a composition by William Grant Still and a recording that I'm sure will make its way onto this um, radio program, Unmute the Voices. So I mentioned in the announcements, I did a master class at Shenandoah University. So um, one of the students, um, I can't remember all of the pieces, one of the students brought in the uh, Sansons, Bassoon, Sonata. There there were several other things, you know, from, from the canon. And one student brought in uh, the Bayou Home movement from William Grant Still's three songs. Scott, I have to say, it was kind of a moment for me because we're taught all of this repertoire, and I know how to teach, you know, up-and-coming musicians, college right. students, you know, about their nachschlags and starting the trill from above if you're playing Mozart and how you need to really be practicing your E major scale if you want to p- successfully play the middle movement of the same songs. I, I can speak to all of that. Mm-hmm. Thanks to my teacher, my first teacher, Lacoli in Washington, there are certain black works and contemporary works that I have a strong grasp on. And William Grant Still's uh, Three Songs is one of them. I remember Lacolian talking back when this project was being recorded. I was still his student. I think I was a second year senior at that point. And he spoke to the challenges 
of getting this recording, um, you know, put out by these labels because the labels wanted to make sure that he could play things from the traditional repertoire. You know, these folks in these positions of power need to hear the white music, need to hear you play the white music to make sure that you can really play, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, after pressing through that, you know, those challenges and all of that drama, the recording finally came out. So not only, you know, do we have this piece of music that students are beginning to learn, um, we have this recording that they can reference and getting to, you know, speak to the Negro spiritual and help these students understand the songs they are playing. These aren't just notes and rhythms. You know, this is music that comes from struggle, mm, that comes yeah. from a tradition, yeah. and that comes from hope. So the opportunity to to really go there with students felt like a really huge full circle moment for me. And I feel like so many more people can have that moment by hearing these black pieces that they feel like no one else really knows or no one else has really um, respected on radio programs like this, like Unmute the Voices, I think it's going to be a big moment. So my long way of saying shout out to Quentin Morris. Here's an excerpt from Lacolian Washington's performance of Bayou Home by William Grant Still. Um, and here's uh, our conversation. It's one thing to have Black people in a city, but it's another thing to have Black folks who are not afraid, who are empowered, who can be political when they need to, and have influence, and know how to speak up and get things done. And, and I think there are a number of Black people here within the city that um, are about action. And it's really important, of course, to have those actionable Black people within the institutions actually making change and not and not just um, go along with it all. What's your um, what's your relationship with classical music now as opposed to earlier legs of your career? Surely it's not the same so-called classical music anymore for you, right? No, um, but you know I have to say that for me. Um, I love classical music. Um, I chose to go into classical music. I, I made a conscious decision when I was 20. Um, I never aspired to become a professional musician at all. Um, I had aspirations of becoming an attorney. Mm. Uh, I grew up in the 80s. L.A. Law was was a very popular show in the early 80s. And I remember Blair Underwood. That was one of his first 
gigs as an actor. And I was very inspired by that because I saw representation on television. And, and of course there was Claire Huxtable who was also a very successful attorney. And, um, and, and of course that when I was younger led me to want to go to a black college because of a different world. And I did that. And when I got to college, I actually had a violin professor. Um, I had always taken lessons, um, but I didn't even know that it was an option for me to become a professional musician. And she inspired me and, and I made the conscious decision to then go the music conservatory route. Um, so I think for me, I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew how political, how racist, how, um, I knew how uh, just challenging the business or people, excuse me, I should say, can be in that fi- in our field. Um, Where did that also- come from? Did, did that come from your teacher, that understanding of the difficulties of the field? Because I feel like a lot of musicians did not see that coming in. Yeah, I think because, um, for one, uh, I did go to a couple of music festivals, and so there were, of course, there was that and, and being the only one. But, you know, I was in youth symphony and when I was younger and I was always the only black. And so I did have some exposure to it, um, but I didn't know that it was an option for me to pursue as a career. Um, so I think, you know, between my teachers and going to festivals and that sort of thing, and then just the experience of always being the only black, I did at least have some idea of how isolating the business can be. But I also chose uh, a different route for myself. So um, when I was in school, schools, (laughs) I made sure that in every city that I lived in, I connected with the black community. And I made sure that I had friends from other schools who were black that I could talk to, that I could relate with and they could relate with me. And um, so I always looked at school as work. And um, and so I didn't have a lot of friends at, 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 at the schools that I went to. They were my colleagues and they were people that I, I considered coworkers in one sense. Mm-hmm. But they weren't my friends because I knew who I was. I also think because I went to a black college prior to going to conservatories that um, that I I understood what black empowerment meant. And I also understood being at Xavier University in New Orleans that black is very diverse and it's very diverse in the types of excellence that are um, that encompass who we are as a race. So um, it's not a one size fits all. There are many, many forms of, of black people who are exceptional and, and excellent and do a plethora of things. And so when I went into classical music, um, I already knew who I was as a black man and I didn't necessarily need the field to define who I was or limit me or tell me what I was going to do or how I was going to do it because I had already a vision in my mind of what I was going to do. 
And to be perfectly honest with you, Garrett, my career and everything that I have done is far more than I could have ever imagined when I first went in. I watched, like you, I watched A Different World, but because, you know, I am a first, I'm now a first generation college graduate, you know, the concept of going to an HBCU was just not one that I was familiar with because the concept of going to college was new um, in my genealogy. Um, when you add that on top of the idea that a lot of folks, maybe even a lot of black musicians, think of the HBCUs as schools that aren't gonna give them the sort of training and education in so-called classical music that, that they need to uh, survive in the field. I wonder what your thoughts are on um, that black foundation, I, you know, you're, you're inspiring me because, you know, the way that you traverse your career seems to be directly connected again to that black empowerment, that black foundation that you got um, at your first school. Is, is that a route, in your opinion, that most, maybe even all black musicians should take, starting with that black foundation at a black school and going from there? You know, that's interesting. I just got goosebumps because I had a flashback to when I was a freshman um, in, in college at Xavier. Um, Xavier was very, um, uh, very non-traditional in the sense of uh, gender roles. Mm -hmm. So the school was, I would say about 60 to almost 70% women. And so uh, homecoming is a very big deal. At oh, Black of course, Island. yeah. Yeah. So... When homecoming came around, um, they had Mr. Freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and then they had Mr. Xavier, and they had the same for women. Well, for the men, all of the men had to do a pageant, okay? So you had a talent division, you had a oratory, you had, there was, I think, a dance division or something, dance competition or something, it was all the stereotypical stuff that women do in Miss yeah. America pageant. Now, what's interesting is my sister wound up actually going and being in the Miss America pageant in 1999. So very interesting. But anyway, all of the men competed in pageants. All of the women, they did elections. Hmm. So all of the women at Xavier, they would... Um, run for, they would run, like Miss Xavier was an office. Miss Freshman was an office. So it was almost like they flipped it. They flipped yeah. what the quote gender roles were. And so if you were a, a woman, you had to campaign and have a campaign manager and a budget and all this stuff. You had and to have got, your stuff together. You had to have it to <laughs> together. And it was, when I look back on it, it's really brilliant. Um, and so it, it, for me, um, I learned really what it means to be excellent and also what it means to be diverse and non-traditional um, as a Black man and also how to celebrate diversity. Mm -hmm. And so I think to answer your question, um, I really think it goes back to self that as Black people, um, knowing who you are 
and understanding what contributions you want to make to the industry. Because I think a lot of times as Black musicians, we think that we, that the industry owes us or they, they, we, we need to be given all of these things from the industry. And, and to some extent that's true, but I think it's also about us saying, what can we do to contribute and what value can we bring to the industry so that other people can be inspired and other people can be frankly changed. So the way that we experienced music and, and how we were inspired to where we picked up the instrument or we went into a voice lesson, how can we take that and inspire change within our field? And I think there are a number of predominantly white institutions in the arts that are beginning to see what folks like us can contribute to, to <laughs> what they're doing. You know, um, I've made it, I've talked about it on Triloquy. I've uh, made it very public on my social media, you know, among the many things that I've done um, was actually talking to uh, your colleagues at your radio station. And, you know, I, I famously, infamously at this point ended with this slide with all of these white composers that represent a day in the programming there. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder what your reaction to something like that is, because a lot of people, when we talk about what we can contribute, there's also um, a lot of, uh, how, how can I say, people don't like the call out culture of it all. From my mm. perspective, sometimes that's required. What, what, what was your reaction? I, I, I asked my co-host, I'll ask you as well. Is that the right way? It's one thing to go into a space and say, y'all are racist. This is trash. You know, it's another thing to say, well, these are the receipts. And if that upsets you, that that upsets you. I, I wonder what your reactions are or were to that. You know, I, I think that there there is. Um, there is some times where I think that that call out is necessary. Um, but I, I tend to take a different approach. Um, for instance, uh, and I have been public by saying this, I'm not one who goes out to a protest. Hmm. In my opinion, protests are not for black people. I don't need to go out and hold a sign and let you know that my life matters. I don't need to do that. Now, no offense to those who do, but I feel like the protest, at least for me, I'm not going to be out there. Now, where I will be is advocating behind closed doors, making sure that grant funding in the arts is equitable, making sure that policies are in place so through an anti-racism lens. Um, so I, I tend to um, focus more on policy and 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 changing the system which is systemically racist and so and, and that type of change happens when the dollar is impacted when when people when companies start losing money that's when you know you're on to something and so for me personally that's where i tend to focus my activism on is behind the scenes um, and, and so I do, but I do think at the same time, I'll couple that by saying that I do think that 
calling out, you know, blatant racism is important and also holding institutions accountable um, when they are, you know, being racist or they are not being inclusive or just operating from a lens of pure ignorance. I do think that that is important. Um, I also think that um, we as Black people have had to do a certain amount of educating, whether yeah. we have liked it or not. I think that that is a role that we willingly or unwillingly have had to embrace. Um, and I think that that comes with the responsibility, unfortunately, of just who we are as a people. I don't always feel, agree with that. And God knows I get tired of having to explain. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, um, that that is unfortunately just part of, of, of what we have to do in order to really create change. And, so, from, and from my perspective, necessary because let's say an orchestra or, or a, a classical radio station programs nothing but black music for three days in a row, maybe even three weeks in a row. You know, there would be a lot of feedback there one way or another. Programs that central whiteness never get that sort of critique. It doesn't seem strange to someone to see nothing but white men in programming. And I think that's where some of that, right. th that's what inspires my call out, just to make sure mm -hmm. people understand that this is not normal. I understand that you think this is normal and neutral, but um, it's not. Sticking with classical radio how consequential do you think classical radio programming is to the general conversation of racial equity in the arts and i ask that question because i was not a classical radio a public radio listener contributor until i entered into the field as a as a host it was just something that was not in my periphery and and that's with my being upper at that time a, a professional um, bassoonist. You know, I had my my life was very much embedded in classical music, but classical radio was not a part of that experience, mm. at least not for me. So again, how consequential is diversity in classical radio programming to the general conversation? Well, I, you know, I can only speak for my program, which is um, is doing just that. Is is really highlighting and, and spotlighting um, the works of um, all people of color. First, the composers, because, I mean, they really have it the toughest, right? The composers, um, you know, just composers in general, but then, you know, Black, Indigenous composers, come on. Yeah. I mean, they, they got it rough. They have it rough, you know? Um, and so our our new program is really focused on unmuting those voices and and really making sure that um, those composers are um, are heard and that they're celebrated, not just heard but celebrated. And I yeah. think I think that is that is my goal is to celebrate the amazing contributions of that composer who lives in, I don't know, you know, the sticks of Alabama sure. or in upstate Troy, New York, and no one's ever heard of that person. And they're indigenous or they're Puerto Rican or they're black or they're mixed race or 
whatever. And they're fabulous and they're brilliant. They didn't go to top schools, they, but they wrote, they have great music and everyone needs to hear it, you know? Um, and, and so I think that's the first. And then I think the second is highlighting and spotlighting people of color who are performers. And I'm not interested in just spotlighting performers who play the music of, um, of, of people of, of color. I'm also interested in people of color who have recorded like, I don't know, Mozart uh, flute concerto or, or um, I don't know, Strauss um, second horn concerto right. or the, you know, or this brilliant conductor who, who conducted Bernstein because they're also making contributions to our field and, and the standard repertoire. I think a lot of times people think subconsciously that if you're a person of color, you only play people of color music, but we're, we also excel within the classical music standard music and that needs to be heard and so i'm also taking that step and saying i want to hear from those people who who play all the standard rep and i want to expose you and introduce you to the greater um listening audience in the classical music genre because you're brilliant and you need to be heard. I'm challenged by that though, because I'm not sure what it serves or who it serves to hear Anthony, Anthony McGill, for example, playing the Brahms or to hear Imani Wins playing a, a Rika quintet. Who does, who, do, who does it serve to hear, you know, these black musicians playing this white repertoire, you know, when we talk about, yes, we can do both. And I, I affirm that I think we can do both because we have had to, I, I didn't go to, I didn't go to college. I didn't study the bassoon, just dying to learn the Mozart bassoon concerto. That's just how the curriculum was built. I, I wonder if, sure. uh, if, if the canon as performed by black people serves black people. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that it can do both. I think that there are those people, those black musicians who, who, who don't, who do love the classics. And, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I just think that they haven't been given a platform or an opportunity to be celebrated. And I think that they are just as important as those performers who want to just play music of black composers. I think both are equally important and both are relevant and should be celebrated. One of the things that I want to do when it comes to um, diversity, inclusion, and most importantly, equity in um, classical radio programming is challenging the uh, notion of what is classical, what what counts as a classical composition. Mm -hmm. I'll remember in in my opening weeks as a uh, as a as a programmer and a host for public radio, I wanted to put on, and this was early. I wanted to put on um, Duke Ellington's. I think it was Black, Brown, and Beige. And I was a little hesitant because it sounded very jazzy. But, you know, at the at the end of the day, you know, as as people who know me, I just throw those doubts out the window. And if you don't like it, you you, you don't like it. What, what, what do you think? What, yeah. What do you think about expanding 
what classical radio presents, you know, especially, and, and let me add this. Yeah. If we affirm, you know, with the uh, with the exception of the music codified by indigenous people, you know, if we affirm the Negro spiritual and black music as foundational to what is American classical music, something that Dvorak himself affirmed and many other people, why can't the um, extracts and the evolutions of that Negro spiritual be on classical radio? Why can't we hear um, instrumental R&B. Why can't we hear a little rap on classical radio for those of us who consider that a classic genre of American music? Well, <laughs> that didn't, you know, now that's really interesting that you mentioned that because Chamber Music America, for instance, they have affirmed that jazz is chamber music. It's the American chamber music. Right, it's it's an, a small ensemble, and um, by all standards, they are correct. It's a you know that's what chamber music was designed for. It was designed for for small ensembles to come together, and so in that sense, I think you're absolutely right that it it does um, that that small ensemble music is. Um, chamber music and it's technically classical music. In this case, it's American classical music. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that if we're talking specifically about, and mostly, I should preface this by saying that audiences don't care about form. They don't care about form. They don't care about the sonata allegro form or, or any of that, you know, rhetoric that we as, is is classically trained musicians have have studied and had to you know do you mean to tell me you don't get complaints when a recording doesn't do that first movement repeat in in the symphony <laughs> <laughs> i think we should have, exactly. i put on twitter we should abolish that that right anyway <laughs> but you know you know what it, it, it's something that i am actually wrestling with myself because like for instance michelle legrand who is one of my absolute favorite favorite composers I mean, he wrote brilliant melodies and, and brilliant orchestrations. And I would love to be able to, to incorporate that into my, you know, if I could incorporate into my show, I would, you know, he, he's brilliant. I mean, Lady Sings the Blues soundtrack, 1971. I mean, yeah. I rest my case, you know. Um, but I, I, I do think that you you bring an interesting point up about the classical music canon and um and how, how it is perceived. Um, and I, I don't think I really have a true answer for you, Garrett, because I have to think about that. I really do, because it's, it's a deep question. Um, I mean, I think back to one of the, uh, I'm, I'm thinking back a lot to my, my early days in, in, uh, in radio down in Knoxville right now. You know, one of the things that I could not play enough for the people was that um, John Rutter Beatles concerto. You know, mm. they just could not get enough of that. When are we going to hear Beyonce on the piano? Well, you know, composers like Stevie Wonder, you know, Ray Charles, all of those aesthetics as classical music, as American classical music. I really, from my perspective, I really think we need mm. to push toward that if public radio, classical radio is going to survive. Well, I don't know. I think you, I think for one is, is asking the people if that's what they want. 
But who are the people? Who who is our audience? Well, is, is my follow up to that. You know, when, when I think about it for myself, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 the audience, I think, is diverse. I think that there is definitely an argument to be made that classical radio um, definitely needs to be much more inclusive, and I think that it definitely needs to be much more diverse. That's something that I'm definitely charged with, um, with doing with my program. But I think that that is a much deeper, broader conversation that um, needs to be had by many different communities within just music in general. First is even talking to someone like Stevie Wonder or Beyonce and saying, hey, would you consider your music to be classical? And because and, I would be really curious what they would say about that. Are, is there going to be pushback? Well, you know, this is Black music. This is, you know, I'm this is R&B, this is soul music, this is pop music, you know, that's what my contribution is, you know, to to just music in general. So I would be curious what they would say. I would also be curious, kind of going back to the whole jazz thing, what jazzers would have to think and say about that. Um, And then also just the classical music audience in general, the classical musicians who play it, the composers who write it, and then the the listeners who who engage with it, you know, I think that people listen to classical music for very many different reasons. Yeah, that's and, a good point. You know what I'm saying? It, they listen for lots of different reasons, um, and and I don't think there is one specific reason that's right or wrong. Um, I think it is all in that moment what you want to do to create your listening experience. How is it that you want to feel? What is it that you want to say to someone? Um, I think all of that plays a large part in um, the making of, of this music. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's just music that needs to be heard. It's so just good music. So with all of those things considered, with all of those things being said, are you confident that there is a critical mass of millennials and more importantly, Gen Zers who are going to maintain that space for what you're describing as just music? Are the young people, uh, well, I'll, I'll ask it this way, is public radio, is classical radio doing from your perspective what it needs to do to pass the baton on to the future public radio professionals? <sighs> Passing the baton, I don't know if I believe in passing the baton. I believe in, evo- in, in evolution. And I think that we are evolving. I think that young people are very smart. Um, they're witty. They're crafty, much more than I was when I was in my 20s. Um, and, and I don't fully understand everything about them. And I'm not supposed to, as someone who is not a, 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 a millennial or Gen Zer, I'm not supposed to understand everything. And I'm not supposed to agree with everything that they do, but I think that's that's part of evolving as a um as an adult, as a as a listener, and I think just as a human. Um, they're gonna eventually get in their 30s and 40s, and then there's gonna be, I don't know, Gen Q who comes up or Gen Gen uh G. 
and they're not going to understand the next generation. But what I will say is that I believe that there are young people who, who are just as passionate about classical music as you and I are, who have their opinions and their thoughts and in whatever capacity that they, um, decide to evolve and, and, um, and keep moving the ball forward. I think they'll do it in their way. And, uh, classical music has evolved so much, especially over COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There have been, we talk a lot about what we have lost, but my God, we have gained so much in my opinion during COVID. Um, it has forced us to stop, to listen, to appreciate, to value, to be thankful. And I think those are all qualities that we had before COVID, but I don't feel that we as humans, as a, as a human race, I feel like we took that for granted. And so when we bring that to our art form and when we want people to hear and to stop and and listen, I think the engagement is more powerful now than it was before March of 2020. Getting folks to stop and listen being one of the many responsibilities of radio hosts and, and producers and, 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 and that you. sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I think that it's, and I think that's powerful. And so that's why with, with young people, I have faith that in whatever capacity that they carry the torch or if we pass the torch or whatever, that's going to be fine. I don't feel like classical music has, is dying. I don't feel that classical radio is dying. I think it's evolving. And that evolution uh, can't come soon enough, as far as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to ask you to give us um, give give us an outro, maybe a piece of music that you've been excited to share with your audiences. But before um, I do that, you know, there's someone listening right now. There's a composer, a musician, a creator. Um, what is your pitch to them for unmute the voices? What's what's in it for them as a composer, as opposed to just the audience, as far as submitting these recordings and being a part of this initiative? Uh, well, I think the first thing is acknowledgement, which I think is really important. That you're a composer, you're frustrated because you have files and files of music on your laptop. You have files and files of music on your um, bookshelf. You just graduated from college. You are, you just lost your job. You are a 50 something year old composer and you feel ignored. You are at the end of your career and you, you've never had your music performed on a radio station. Let's unmute that. Let's unmute your experience and unmute your voice and acknowledge your hard work by having you on the radio. 
Um, I should also mention that Unmute the Voices is not just classical radio. It's not just an opportunity for your music to be heard, but it's also for your stories to be told. And my God, do we all have some powerful stories. Mm-hmm. And so there's a video series that's being created as well where we can engage in these types of conversations and, and share experiences as well as spotlight and celebrate um, the careers that we've had and, and also hear about our aspirations and our goals and also serve as inspiration and encouragement to someone else. Um, so if, that, if there were any sort of way of passing the torch, this is how we do it. We share our stories, we share our music, we share our experiences in the hopes that it inspires and that um, in, in that it, it motivates someone else towards action, whether it's action towards um, improving Black lives or, or not improving, but advocating, excuse me, for Black lives or whether it is um, speaking uh, about the racial injustices that people of color in this country face, or whether it's writing a letter to um, your senator, you know, on behalf of the arts or whatever. Um, everyone has a story, and every story is powerful in their own respective way. Um, so that's what I would say to composers. I would say also to performers that um, we too have had a a lot of rejection in, in, um, in, and like I was saying earlier, there's great music that, that performers have, have played. And so whether it has been a piece by Mozart or a piece by, um, Patrice Russian, uh, we want to hear from you too. And, and we want to celebrate you. And, and, and this is a platform that is exclusively um, available to you in order to do that. How about you give us an uh, an example, uh, maybe a, a taste of of your show? What's a what's a piece of music that you've been excited to share with your audience? <laughs> David for, for Baker's, us to share here, dude. David Baker's second movement blues. Oh my god. Okay, David Baker. He's deceased now, but he was the part. He was the chair of of um, department, uh, chair of jazz studies at Indiana University for years. Oh my God, this man was incredible, incredible composer. Um, He actually played cello. He played, I think, cello and and trombone. And he had a a mouth injury and was unable to continue to play trombone. And so that's when he started playing um, cello and, and studied with Jonas Starker. Jonas Starker recorded his sonata for cello in piano and it's it's great the first and third movements are fast but the second movement is it's called blues and it almost sounds like you're in a jazz club um where it's smoky you're in the basement there's a blue light maybe a red light in the background and 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 uh and you're on a date and you're drinking a cognac and you just hear this very smoky, sexy, sultry blues movement. And that is so exciting to me. That cello sonata is fire.
A little music by David Baker there. More music that I'm sure will make it on Unmute the Voices, hosted by Quentin Morris. I'll have all of that information on how you can uh, listen to that show and send in your recordings in the description of this opus. Scott, one of the things that I wanted to touch on before we got into the triloquy, the final movement, is uh, one of the questions that Quentin and I really dug into off mic. The idea of affirming things that have not always been called classical as classical. One thing that uh, Quentin was challenging me with was uh, by saying that maybe these blues artists, maybe you know these hip hop artists or whoever, don't want their music associated with a classical tradi- uh, tradition or or a classic tradition. The question I pose to you is: If you have the opportunity to share what you considered classical music from a classical tradition. All of the pathways were there. The music was in the system that you work with and have been approved and, and X, Y, and Z. Would doubt that those artists do or don't want their music associated with the classical tradition stop you from airing it, stop you from sharing it with an audience? So now let's go ahead and let, let's lay this out just so that we're all clear. We're yeah. talking about uh, an orchestral or chamber or solo transcription of something elsewhere that I think is classical? Sure. And if uh, if you can make a case for it. So, you know, just a, uh, as a quick example, sure, orchestral music is going to be on the classical station. I can make a case for an 808 over that orchestral music being okay. I can make a case for any sort of solo instrument, solo guitar, whatever, guitar and voice as classical. I feel like I can... I can make that So case. if we have a recording that has been okayed for air sure. by the powers that be at whatever station I'm at or whatever Which outlet, is another conversation, but yeah, well, let's, we're going. Let's, yep. let's just say that. Yep. That question would never enter my mind as to whether or not the artist or the composer w- would want it on a classical station. Yep. I would play it until their management or that person said, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Every yep. chance I got, I would, yep. I would plug it in. If it was a favorite of mine like if it was some chamber or a chamber ensemble doing a, a Tom Waits cover or sure. a Steely Dan cover I would play the snot out of that yeah every yeah. chance yeah 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 so, same so, so would I I, re- I respect all parts of um, the dialogue, you know, as we heard in that David Baker coming out of the conversation, that might not to the ear of a person sound like a black composer or, or black music, but a black person wrote it. Right. So it is, mm-hmm. you know, so I, mm-hmm. I, I affirm the folks who really stick to that tradition. Mm. I affirm people who don't necessarily want their music affirmed as classical, even if I think it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm I'm with you. If I'm working at a radio station and I see Beyonce in the system, it is getting played. <laughs> I, would, I would I would just quote uh, the late jazz pianist Kenny Kirkland, who uh, people used to you know give him and Branford Marsalis uh, a whole boatload of crap because they went on tour with Sting, mm. you know, playing sort of pop esque sure. music with jazz undertones. Kenny was like, I think you should play whatever kind of music you can play. I think, yeah, that's that's a good point because I think there's more, there would be more resistance to being considered pop, right? Sure. I know a lot of the hip-hop artists will say, "I'm this ain't pop, you know, this is real. I'm sure on the countryside, that, that's a rhetoric, this ain't pop, this right. is something else. And, so, and, yeah. I w- and I, from what I have heard, 
in the jazz circles, they're ruthless. If you st- if you stop playing jazz or if you start playing something corny or schmaltzy mm-hmm. or whatever, they're like, man, you ain't even... Because wait, they wait. fight and do drugs over there, but so I'm you better be you. careful. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, fourth movement. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. Tim Scott there giving it up, letting us know what the T is. Mm-hmm. Racism is done, Scott. I, I didn't get that email. I, I, you, we, here we've been doing this podcast for how long, and it's been solved? First and foremost, I thought I was, when I heard that said, and then when I heard it affirmed by Vice President Kamala Harris, I kept my mouth shut on social media because I felt like I would have been in the minority. Mm. I feel like people would have been jumping on me for, you know, oh, well, these are black people up here trying to do something, and you're just shitting on them, and X, Y, so I kept my mouth shut. The more I'm seeing folks talk, the more I'm seeing my opinion affirmed that this is very violent to say something like America is not a racist country. Mm-hmm. What's your? Um, I have some receipts here, but I mean, do do, do you have do you have words? Are you challenged? Yeah. By uh, by hearing this from black folk, what what are your thoughts? Uh, I have to preface all of this by saying I am extremely uncomfortable being this public about these sorts of views but i'll go ahead um and also this is an opinion okay opinion i'm not trying to you hear that joshua i'm not trying (laughs) i'm not trying to tell kamala how to act or what to say or anything she is her own person right now i know that on the republican side they will look for a person of color to put on Fox News or OAN or whatever it is, so that they can go, see, we have this Hispanic person or we have this black person, and they say that everything's cool. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking the Stacey Dash and the Candace Owens and, you know, those sorts, right? So we have to have that. And there's Tim Scott to provide mm-hmm. that role. Um, when, when it comes from Kamala, I just don't know what to make of it because... Joe Biden has used the words white supremacy and racism frequently in his speeches. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just, I don't understand where that came from. But you, you wanted me to think about um, that very question, if I thought America was racist. Because the only thing that I came back to with Kamala was that nobody wants to admit it. Okay? N- nobody wants to come out and say, okay, I have privilege. I have some low-grade racism that's, mm-hmm. that's come to me somehow that I, I don't remember that I need to work with. Also, I'm thinking about the people that I know in my extended family and the old neighborhoods that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. These are people that once they got around me would change the way they talk because they knew that I didn't like slurs and the like, right? Or, or racist jokes. And so they just wouldn't do that around me. But I know that they're doing it otherwise. And you know that uh, uh, even if even if you yourself are the least racist person you know right there's probably something in there that that is racist in your thought process and 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 if not then you probably know somebody who does have them right now i'm talking to the white folks right this this is meant for them because if you are riding on that. If you are riding on uh, the idea that you can just code switch depending on who you're around, or if you think that you can ride your skin color 
and and think that you're not going to be uh, one day somehow victimized by law enforcement right. or some sort of of um, authority, you're doing it wrong. That's what I think. Um, yeah, I, I think that everybody has a little bit of it in them, and it just is a degree of how much is shown, shades of sure. gray as to how much sure. is shown. Does that make sense? Everyone likes to think of themselves as a good person. Mm-hmm. I imagine most white people like to think of themselves as not being racist. And I think that's where apprehension comes from in naming this as what it is, a racist country, because we don't want to name racist individuals. This is, this is my response to this, Scott. Let's look at the structures. When we talk about is America a racist structure for a, a country, for me, I think we have to look at the structures. I have a show running. Um, it's uh, The 13-part series has run out in, in a lot of cities, but mm-hmm. shout out to everyone who's been running The Sound of 13. Okay, One of the things that I repeat in that 13-part series is that slavery is still legal. If you go to the Constitution and read the 13th Amendment, your punishment for breaking a crime can be slavery, okay? And that's just in the books. That's not mm. me. Go read the Constitution, okay? That's that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm think I was thinking today about the Emmett Till Anti Lynching Act. This was um, put forward by uh, uh, you know by the House back in 2019. It passed the House. Um, it was objected by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, and now we're trying again, and it's it's still just kind of floating around. We 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 don't have this passed, okay? So we have on the books that if you break a law, there's a loophole for you to become a slave. We can rush to make every type of legislation for every group, and I'm not going to go into that specifically, but there have been executive orders since. Uh, Joe Biden, you know, took took office that have come down when it comes to certain marginalized groups and ending hate for certain marginalized groups. But we can't get an anti-lynching act on the books. Okay, what is the problem? What is the problem here? The problem is that America is a racist country. I dis I disagree with Tim Scott. I disagree with Vice President Kamala Harris because I think the receipts are there, and we could we could go down and, and grab more examples. This is a music podcast, and I think there is a musical connection to this concept. Let's think about um, the New York Phil. Okay, we were saying streets is bike. <laughs> Let's think about the New York Phil. They were founded during straight up slavery. Right, black people were you know. Uh, Chattel slavery was alive and well while they were playing Beethoven up at the New York Phil. Shortly after that, you have, uh, I think, uh, the second group that, the the group that claims to be second is uh, the St. Louis Symphony. This is back in 1880, a group Mm. founded by German immigrants to celebrate German culture. Okay, obviously, things have slightly change in that regard. We, we go on after that to the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra. Anyway, as Titus affirmed last week, shout out to Titus Underwood, all of these institutions were either founded during slavery, in the case of the New York Philharmonic, or during racist reconstruction, or during black codes, or during Jim Crow. So all of these orchestras have cultural and historical foundations in these problematic eras of history. If we look at programming, if we look at audiences, if we look at the very 
Western European clothing and attire, you know, these tucks and tails that we're expected to wear um, as performers in these spaces, the sort of expectation to dress up as, as an audience member. I see very similar structural issues connected to racism, connected to marginalizing people who are not white, who don't affirm and center that white cultural bias. I think uh, in the United States, structurally, when we talk about government, when we talk about politics, it is very obvious that that sort of white supremacy needs black participation to survive. Okay, again, shout out to Tim Scott and Kamala Harris. I see the same thing in so-called classical music. I think as you were talking to the white folks earlier, okay, I'm talking to the black people. I think we need to stop passively saying that classical music is not racist. Every time we go and sit on a stage and see a program that is all white and we don't say anything. Every time we see two, three, four, five programs in a row that don't include women and we just think that's normal. We have to stop passively per, per, uh, participating, participating. I want to say precipitating. We want to stop both of those. By the, t- by the time we get to the fourth movement. <laughs> anyway. You get my point, Scott. Do you get do you, do you get my my correlation? Mm-hmm. There are structural issues in classical music that we are all but affirming when we don't call things out, when we don't affirm the racism therein. Okay, mm-hmm. to everyone listening, America is a racist country. Go do something to change that reality. Mm-hmm.